0: Amongst all you, my brothers and sisters in Christ to share the word of the Lord with you. Today I'll be picking up on the book of Isaiah in chapter 2. We all know that the book of Isaiah is a unique and a prophetic book of the Old Testament. And it places within itself a period of God's chosen people within the timeline covering the time of the kingdom split after Solomon's death to Judah and Israel. Though the prophecies of Isaiah look mainly at the kingdom of Judah, we can also see the other uh, prophetic books of the minor prophets and how the people of Israel and Judah behaved during that period. Many things happened during that period. We also saw the prophets Amos, Hosea, Jonah prophesize in the northern kingdom. So there's much interrelated geographical, cultural, and historical context of these books that provide excellent credibility and testimony for that period. One of the key elements of chapter two in Isaiah's book reveals the spiritual authenticity of followers of Yahweh during that period, and how that itself testifies for us Christians today as well. Where do we find our motivations in living in a world that seems chaotic and uncertain? Forget the future, that looks more frightful and ready to steal all that we have and our hopes. However, the more we subjectively realize and convince that our sense of stability is not grounded in God alone because of a world of chaos and turmoil, the more it causes us to seek comforts and security from our surroundings. Our objective focus in our spiritual life, is misguided into wanting materialistic needs, security, and comforts now at all costs. Established people have nothing beyond maintaining the status quo and respond to material loss with rage and despair. We are calculating our efforts in our work. However, we are only creating our own vulnerabilities and removing our spiritual armor against the unpredictability of the world around us. World events also for, force us to reevaluate our position in the secular world. War, diseases like the COVID pandemic we just went through, many of us going through pain and suffering, natural disasters that, and nature seems, seem threats that even in acknowledgement, we have little power against it. An illusion of our desperation makes us believe that we are literally defenseless against the world around us. In our chapter today, Isaiah reminds the people of Judah to set their hearts on God, rather than the immoral and secular beliefs of the world around them. And this is an important warning then and a reminder for us Christians today. Let us take our Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter two. Here in this chapter, we see the poetic quality worthy of Isaiah and a topic more suited to him than any other, with his enthusiastic love for Zion and its traditions. This narrative in this chapter that undergrids Isaiah's poem is rooted in the universalism of the Abrahamic promise that can be found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. And the Lord said, I will make you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Therefore, comparing Isaiah's writing here against the Abrahamic promise, we see how Isaiah makes it a challenge to all his contemporaries then, and for us today. Before we begin, let us pray. Heavenly Father, today we hear your word through the prophet Isaiah and hear your call for us to set aside our objective focus and place our hearts in you. When you created us in your image and likeness, you did not leave us alone, but gave us the ability to seek and find you. However, our weaknesses have been our distractions, that our hope and material desires only focus on the present and our desperate needs within our reasoning to seek and satisfy those desires. We have forgotten that you have been steadfast and never left us to fight this battle alone. You are our creator and your loving display have revealed the path to walk. Let us hear the word and understand your warnings against the world and seek you through your son whom you had sent as a witness to you and through your loving grace has displayed the glory and the magnificence of God, not only as example, but as our savior and redeemer that our sins have been justified and made clean. Let us heed your word and pick up our crosses and follow your son, to whom we can be made pleasing in your eyes. Fill this hall of all those who are listening with the Holy Spirit and set aside the world. We ask this through your son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us begin. In Isaiah verse, chapter two, verse one, Begins with the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 1 reestablishes Isaiah as the son of Amos as the literary opening. It emphasizes the time and the place which the falling prophetic narrative points to the object of discernment, which is Judah and Jerusalem. Even if the narrative is revealed by God through the Holy Spirit and was to Isaiah, it was targeted to Judah. However, we today look at the narrative as a divine and testimonial revelation for all who believe in God and his word. It presents itself as the same warning towards us today. What follows in the rest of chapter two is a poem of the transforming power of our longings and humbleness. How do we set aside our own reasoning and place our hopes in God? And this is why I've titled my sermon, Setting aside self to the promises of God. Why does Isaiah link hope with humility? And what does it mean to set aside ourselves and place ourselves in God? Because we use the world around us and its unrestricted moral boundaries for our own goals. How we seek answers through our own lens as a means of self-fulfillment. We justify our needs and desires as excuses of self-fulfillment and security for immediate rectification, setting aside God and His Word. We bend the rules, so to speak, and allow our own objective reasoning to justify immoral behavior. In in, In this chapter, this is exactly what Isaiah is addressing, that God can replace our fear and pride. And set aside our own reasoning and choices and place it in him. As we look through these passages, we see a structure that can be divided in three theological themes. First, theme one, which is the transforming power of hope in verses two to five. This theme is divided into two parts. First, the hope that, can, that is revealed, which is found in verses two to four. And this can be achieved only through the transforming power of God found in verses 5, with the narrative, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Next, in the second theme, is the transforming power of humility found in verses 6 to 19, which looks at the church and the world. There are two important areas of concern. First, excuse me, first is verses 6 to 9, which outlines the church, full but empty Empty in spiritual fortitude. And second, the world, high but low in verses 10 to 19. What we see in the world seems pleasing to our eyes, but hollow in spirituality. Verses 10 to 19 can be further dissected. Verses 10 reminds us that man is defenseless before God. Verse 11 declares that the Lord alone will be exalted. Verses 12 to 16 declares that no matter how we decide to live our lives, God will defeat all pride. Verses 17, Isaiah reinstates that the Lord alone will be exalted. And verses 18 and 19, declare that man's idols are defenseless before God. And finally, in verses 20 and 21, we see the third theme. Idols are only our subjective expressions of our self desires and, de- and deemed precious to men, but contemptible to God. In concluding with the transforming power, which tells us to stop regarding man, in verse 22. Here, Isaiah tells us that the power that transform is from God and God tells us to stop looking at man. As we come to live to God's promised future, we dethrone our idols and our objective reasons, that the Lord alone is exalted within us. Let us look through the passages and see God speaking through Isaiah. Let's begin with the first theme, hope, a hope in God's promises, the transforming power of hope in verses two to five. In verse two, it shall come to pass in latter days, that the mountain of the house of the lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills in fact this verse is further repeated in the book of micah in chapter 4 verses 1 to 3 which corresponds exactly to isaiah chapter 2 verses 2 to 4. the words in latter days could be translated in hebrew in the end of days what does isaiah foresee for judah's future and more importantly what do it, does it see, say to us for our future? Isaiah sees the overwhelming worship of God, Yahweh, while all religions of men will be humbled into nothing. In Isaiah's day, people located their shrines on hills and mountaintops closer to heaven. Mythologically, mountains were the homes of the gods, the pagan gods. Historically, the Lord chose Mount Zion, as it was written in Psalms 87 verses 1 to 2, on the holy mountain stands the city he founded, the Lord loves the gates of Zion, more than all the dwelling places of Jacob, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. However, eschatologically, which which is in the time of our death judgment and the final destiny of our soul for us and humanity, is when the whole earth will be the Lord's mountain home, As it is written in Isaiah chapter eleven verse nine, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and the waters cover the sea. This is why Isaiah speaks here the Lord's house and not temple. A temple is primarily a place of worship. A house is primarily where the Lord has come to live among His people. Nevertheless, even as God chose Mount Zion in the land of Israel to be the place where he should be worshipped, it's not impressive by the usual standards compared to the pagan worshippers who created majestic arenas for worship and sacrifices. (coughs) However, the house upon God dwells among his people and maintains his presence, he does not wander from temple to temple. As is written in Exodus chapter 29, verse 45 to 46. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And I will dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. We must be reminded that today the church is rarely impressive to the eyes of men outside by the circular standards, where material and wealth, is the benchmark of value. This distorts our values and where, and where we place our hearts. And this is where exactly what Jesus warns us in today's scripture reading. And a part of that one reading in Matthew six nineteen to 21 is the last verse in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. We place our values and treasures in heaven and in Jesus Christ and we're on the right track to God. Those who are called to God are not valued by their material wealth, not by their worldly wisdom, not by noble lineage, but by the wealth of your faith, your wisdom from God, and your lineage, in the created image and likeness of your father in heaven. As Paul reminds us not to place our faith in worldly standards in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers, for not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. However, my brothers and sisters, in the latter days, This will all change when the nations will abandon their worldviews and ideologies and gladly give the church the esteem of the world's leader in worship. As Isaiah writes in verses 2-3, And all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the mountain of God of Jacob, that he may teach his ways, and he may walk in his paths. And out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The Lord promises a worldwide miracle as nations far from being forced will gladly hurry to worship God and learn his ways. They will set no presuppositions or conditions. They'll be eager and open. My brothers and sisters, that miracle has already begun. Began with the minute Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 18 to 24, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I I am with you always to the end of age. The great commission is going on today, my brothers and sisters, to Christian missions, throughout the world, and it will be consummated in the latter days. The overflowing human river of conversions to Christ. In verse 3, it says, out of Zion. The implication is out of Zion only. Unfortunately, today, we are told that an exclusive claim to the gospel is intolerant. Many of us have, many of us have faced situations like this in our daily lives. When you hear stories of people who who propagate ideologies, that challenge our moral compass. This is the reality of the secular world today. When the principle of autonomy is an individual right to freedom, gay rights, transgender rights, transgender rights, abortion rights, et cetera, et cetera. Then some even seek harmony among cultures and races by allowing themselves to admit that all religions are valid ways to God so people can be true to themselves. Even those who hold a prophetic vision of a multicultural as all the nations and many peoples, proclaiming it as the beauty of God's diversity, must be reminded that we all held under one law, that all men are created equal and in the image and likeness of God, a law with no preferential treatment based on material wealth, notoriety, fame or power, And it's under this law that we are accountable for our sins and every person will be judged for those sins. Only the Christian worldview answers that dilemma through Jesus Christ. And this is where we as a nation of God's chosen will find our greatest delight in the new covenant. There is no middle road in allowing circular ideology to to dilute the Christian worldview. Furthermore, only if the whole world freely chooses to rally around Jesus Christ by the irresistible force of his dying love, who would deny them that choice? Jesus calls for all the nations and cultures. And it is the revelation of the Trinity that stands as our God in heaven. And it is scripture that we abide, not the free-thinking, selfish, autonomous existence, but only to Jesus Christ. If the gospel is our witness, how desirable is it from a, from a universally human point of view to be alert to Christ? And this Isaiah makes very clear in verse four. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. When the gospel finally sweeps over the world, there'll be neither the practice nor the desire to engage in war. No widows are often to be left, fallen, left behind by a fallen soldier. No more the screams and echoes of human suffering from the dungeons and prisons of human savagery as it is the power of Christ in the word of God that settles our disputes with perfectly satisfying justice and mercy. That is the promise of God. That is our hope. And, where, and what is that power of that hope? Well, Isaiah tells us in verse 5, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Verse 5 echoes verse 3 when Isaiah says in verse 5, resembles what the nations say in verse 3. Come, let us go up to the Lord, to the mountain of the Lord, that we may walk in His path. And verse 5 says, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The difference is the prepositions, to and in. In verse 3, and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his path. Verse verse 5 says, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. The nations come to the worship of God. Believers walk in the light of God. We Christians become a prophetic revelation in our generation today. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. In other words, let the promises of God have the full impact in our lives today. And the apostle John writes about the redeeming value of the light of Jesus Christ in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light, he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Christ, his son cleanses us of our sins. But how is this achieved? Isaiah tells us how it's done in the next theme, which is the transforming power of humility. We need hope and we need humility. He sees pride as a significant obstacle to the world. He discerns pride among God's people, pride in the world, and pride in the worship of idols. And under this theme is the church and the world. First, pride among God, amongst God's people in verses six to nine. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because you are full of things of the East. Now fortune tellers tell the Philist- like the Philistines. They strike hands in the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humble and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. The key words here is fall in verse 6 and fill repeated three times in verse 7 and 8. It is a strong reminder for us, brothers and sisters, that the church can be full of human wisdom, filled with wealth, filled with power, and filled with idols. It's filled with everything but the Holy Spirit. In his book, Dynamics of a Spiritual Life, an Evangelical Theology of Renewal, David Lovelace summarizes it perfectly. When believers stuff their lives full of false false ideals and comforts, it's because in reality they are empty within. They have lost their sense of God. And therefore Isaiah arrives at a shocking conclusion in his own generation in verse 9. So humble are people, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. This verse is a warning that we as Christians today must, may succumb if we fill our lives with anything other than God. We are not enriched, we are brought low. There can come a point of no return. Remember what David said in Psalms 18 verse 27, he warns us, For you have saved a humble people, but the haughty, the arrogant, you bring down just as the kingdom of Judah and Israel finally met their ends. When God's people are so filled with the wrong things and were so empty of any sense of God, that forgiveness becomes unthinkable and God moves on. God is, Isaiah is not saying do not forgive them or ignoring divine forgiveness or should not forgive, be forgiven. That is the irony that it is God who does forgive through His abundant grace. Isaiah says in verse 6, you have rejected your people. It's not that God does not love them anymore, but if a generation of his people along the way become full of pride, he would only do them any favor by, visit, by visiting them a blessing. He would only reinforce their arrogance and self-righteousness. Their, their first need is to be empty. And Isaiah understands this. Proud and and self-sufficient Israel can only become the witness to the greatness of God only when she has been reduced to helplessness and by his just judgment and then restored to life by his unmerited grace. Secondly, Isaiah sees the pride of the world in verses 10 to 19. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust and before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks a man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty hills and against all the uplifted hills against every high tower and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humble and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away. And man shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground and before the terror of the Lord. And from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. The words against all, against every, the same, are the same words in the Hebrew text, appears 10 times in the verses 12 to 16, which is the heart of this section. Everything in the world that exalts itself against God is brought low when his kingdom comes. But why does God insist that he alone be exalted on that day in verse 11 17? Does not God want to see others succeed? The reason is that God's glory entails both His glory and our happiness. Our egocentric self-exaltation degrades us, but humility before God heaps honor upon us. Unfortunately, this is a salvation many of us do not believe in. No individual, not even the whole world together can rob God of His glory. The Bible says in Psalms 46, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. You, You and I are no threat to Him. God is not insecure when He insists upon the triumph of His glory alone. The problem is that we think that His glory and our joy do not lie together in the depths of His heart. We think that we have to compete with his will to fulfill our own potential. Brothers and sisters, that is pride. We think too well of ourselves and too poorly of God to believe that his love for his glory and his love for us is the one true agape love of God that draws him into the final day that he, when we will forever be happy with his glory alone. Nevertheless, how could it be otherwise? Human fulfillment is with God. Jonathan Edwards, who wrote in his book, wisely said, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. The glory is then received both with the whole soul, both by understanding and by the heart. God made the world that he might communicate, and the creatures receive his glory. Isaiah is telling us to strip away all our problems. Our deepest disorder is that the human race arrogantly perceives God as a threat, when in fact his glory, in other words, means heaven Therefore, God has set aside a day on the calendar of human history to destroy with a terrible finality every proud barrier to the only true joy that exists for the human heart. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. We feel uneasy when we read about the terror of the Lord in verses 10 and 19. Well, we should But brothers and sisters, the the worst that can happen is not the terror of the Lord destroying the whole world or you. The worst that can happen is not our loss of financial security, our investments, the loss of our health, the loss of our pride, our ego. The worst that can happen to us is the loss of the delight in the glory of God alone. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 2, through him, Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice of the glory of God. What can happen to us is to be awakened to this glory as our joy, even if we must be humble to experience it. And the third theme Idols precious but contemptible. The prophet discerns pride among idols in verses 20 to 21. In that day, mankind will cast away the idols of silver and idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the hills, and before the terror of the Lord. And from the splendor of his majesty, he will rise to terrify the earth. The key here is the inappropriateness of their idols of silver and gold to the moles and to the bats. Pride deceives people into assembling an idol-filled culture because idolatry gives people a feeling of control and power to make things to worship. However, when the Lord stands forth in unmistakable glory, it will be terrible for those who do not delight in his glory. They will see how worthless their most desired and cherished idols are. They will have nothing worth having. Idols are precious because they are a mirror of ourselves. Idols represent us. We become the idols in our world. We place ourselves on pedestals of praise. And that's why we prize them. We have placed God behind us while we bask in our own glory. But look at what you're giving up as Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth, knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ You are giving up salvation and an eternity in the joys of God in heaven. My brothers and sisters, what golden idols do we cherish as essential to our happiness? What must we throw away to possess the one treasure we cannot live without, which is Jesus Christ? The transforming power of God can only bring us out of the darkness into the light. The humbling experience is the breakthrough into valuing everything in a new way. Isaiah explains the power of humbling oneself and setting aside our judgments, our views, our interpretations, our, 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 setting aside the we, the I, the our, the mind, everything about ourselves first. In verse 22, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? We think of ourselves as capable of dealing with life situations, but the fact is we are gullible. Our self-confidence and arrogance keeps us from walking in the light of the Lord. So God is calling us to take the first step. The greatest need for us is to reject ourselves and live humbly for for God's glory alone. Do you believe that there is enough glory in God to make us happy forever? If you don't, why? A serious question that we must ask ourselves, what is holding us back? What failing have you found in God? The gospel promised that his glory will remake the whole world through his lens. Stop valuing idols. You do not only will lose, but are guaranteed to lose when the Lord returns. Learn to enjoy, love, and embrace God. The triumph of His glory is enough to make our happiness complete. The only way to bring that hope is by setting aside our arrogance, our self righteousness, our autonomy in humility and anchor our lives in the promises of God. Listen to Charles Spurgeon's sermon which was delivered in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in England in the 1800s on this same chapter. Man is by nature an idolater. Under the most favorable circumstances, he flies to his idols even like a dog seeking after carrion or a vulture hastens to his prey. The Lord's people were delivered out of Egypt with the high hand and the outstretched arm. And by many signs and tokens, God's presence among them was abundant, abundantly certified. My brothers and sisters, even though all that we and humanity has done to forsake our God. God continues to pour His love and grace upon us. And listen to what God says to Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 6 to 8. For while we are still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one, it will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We must place Jesus Christ at our forefront through life's uncertainties, realizing that through Him, our losses become pathways to hope. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word today, revealing testimony to the power of Your Word and Your providence throughout our scripture. We blind ourselves to the world outside and we misguide ourselves in the life that we want to live, setting aside your word. But truly through Isaiah, we know that the power of your grace will redeem us and the cross to which your son died for us has brought that salvation and redemption in our lives. Help us today that we walk out through these halls, out into the real world, that your word continues to live in our hearts and to guide us and to lead us in our daily lives. We ask this through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.